In Seattle, Washington, I'm Zach Jabal, and this is the Vine Pair Podcast. Well, listeners, as promised, both Joanna and Adam are out this Monday, so I figured I'd take this opportunity to do something just a tad bit different. Instead of a guest host, I spoke with two journalists and creators doing cool work in the drink space. First, I chatted with M. Sauter, the creator of Pints and Panels, which is an illustrated guide to all things beer and now cocktails. Then I spoke with Beth Devon, author of the upcoming book, The Beer Lover's Guide to Cider. Hope you enjoy these interviews. Have a great week. And Joanna and I will be back with a brand new episode on Friday. Joining me today on the podcast is M. Sauter. She's the cartoonist and founder of Pints and Panels, a freelance writer, a woman of many titles. But uh, right now, she's my guest on the Vine Pair podcast. M, thank you so much for being here. Thanks for having me. So uh, where do we find you right now? Where are you joining us from? I am in my dining room in New England. So let's start for, for people who aren't familiar. What What is Pints and Panels? So Pints and Panels is a website where I do, I do visual drinks education. I actually just started doing cocktails. Um, so, you know, there's a lot more to life than just beer. Uh, so I wanted to make sure that uh, I was kind of hitting all my bases and stuff. I did try to do like a visual wine Thing, and then I realized I don't know a lot about wine and I don't want to <laughs> pretend like I know a lot about wine and that's best left to sommeliers and people who are wine professionals. Um, but cocktails are recipes and I can read a recipe. Um, so I've been doing that as well. And so it's anything you want to learn about beer, I got you. So it's all visual too. So it's actually quite popular in places where English is not spoken, especially in Central and South America. So a lot mm. of Portuguese, Spanish speakers, uh, because there's pictures I've actually learned that breweries will learn, they will learn English through reading Pints and Panels because oh. they'll go, oh, I know that's a picture of this, so that's that word, uh, which I'm like, that's great. I love that. Um, but anyway, oh, sorry for my, I got a clock, you know, you know how it is. <laughs> it's very New England. The, yeah, it's the, very true. The cuckoo clock. I got it, at a, got it at an estate sale. Um, nice. Yeah. But anyway, um, Pints and Panels is, and it's all free. So you go on my website. There's an educational archive in English and some in Spanish, actually, as well. And you can find out about beer styles, how to brew, um, draft cleaning. If you're studying for your Cicerone, I do. I have illustrated guides to the first two levels and some of the advanced and master. So if you're studying for that, um, it's really good for people who are in the industry who are new or they're going to take an exam. And again, it's all free. So I don't charge you to look at it. I want, I just want people to learn about beer in an accurate and easy to digest way. So that's Pints and Panels. I started it in 2010, switched to doing beer education around 2019. I used to do beer, like illustrated beer reviews. Mm. And, but then I realized like the beer I get is the beer you beer is incredibly local. So if I'm reviewing this one beer, like, okay, yeah, we can get that in Connecticut, but can we get that? You know, does the person in Arizona really care about, you know, some really great IPA I drank from, I don't know, like central Massachusetts. So switching to education I felt was more accessible and helping people. So, yeah. And then I've got an online store where you can buy adorable prints. I do commissions. I got, I got, and then I'm writing. I write for Vine Pair. Mm-hmm. I am an international beer judge. I just decided a couple days ago to go to Chile in November. I've never been to Chile. Uh, I've been to South America. I've been to Brazil, but not Chile. So that's cool. Uh, yeah. Yeah. It's fun. I love, I love what I do. I'm like the happiest beer person on, on the earth. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. So did the, did the cartooning come first or did the beer come first? 
the cart- I, w- I started drawing when I was four, so the beard did, nef- did not come first. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I was gonna say if you if your drinking predates that, that might yeah, be a question. then we have to have then we have to have a different discussion. Uh, no, I started drawing when I was four, and then uh, my current style is I was really obsessed with Archie comics in sixth okay. grade, and it was my attempt to draw Archie comics, and um, I remember drawing what actually looks like my style when I was 11 in six period study hall. And I was like, Oh, I like that. And then there it is. So yeah. yeah. And now I'm 40. So I've been doing it for most of my life. And then the beer stuff came, got really into beer in my early twenties. Um, there wasn't a lot, you know, cause I graduated from colleges in 05. So we're looking at the like beginning of the upward swing in craft beer and so I lived in Boston at the time. And so, you know, you have your large, large, good regionals. That's what there's brew pubs and there's large, good regionals. So you got your like long trail and your harpoon and your allagash and then your like small brew pub chains and whatnot. And so that's kind of where I got into beer. And then the, you had your, all the imports. I remember the first time buying Chimay White and being like, $12, <laughs> get out of here. Yeah, right. <laughs> But then it's like it's like the, one of the best beers on earth. The twelve bucks, come on! And it was a seven fifty. It was a large format yeah. bottle. So that's a steal for like drinking the best beer on earth. For goodness sakes, you cheapskate. Um, <laughs> but yeah, that was so. It was a great time to like start getting into beer, and then it just exploded. I went to art school in Vermont, and that was you know watching the you know these brands kind of come out of nowhere. And now they're, you know, Von Tramp was made in their like deli mm-hmm. when I went there and now they have a hundred barrel brew house. And it's wow. just like watching people just kind of like, it's like a rocket, like take off. Um, and then moving to Oregon where beer is just part of the everyday, the Pacific Northwest beer is just part of the everyday conversation. And I had not experienced that. You know, we don't have, when I, I grew up in Connecticut and when I turned 21, there were four breweries and that was 20 years ago and now there are 120 um if not more i can't i can't keep up um (laughs) which is fine so you know i live in a town uh in connecticut i still live in connecticut of seventy five thousand people and there's two breweries here and both are excellent so it's pretty nice to like see how beer is it reminds me of when i lived in oregon where like beer was just Beer was everywhere. You know, you go to like get your car fixed and they're like, can I offer you a beverage? And I was like, what? Or like a bake, you go to a bakery and they would have 12 beers on tap. Um, and it's awesome. Like we didn't have that in Connecticut. And now it's kind of changing where craft beer is, you know, it's part of the fabric of dining out and it's awesome. Very cool. Let's start with with talking about this piece you wrote about Citra and Mosaic hops, which are, as you wrote, or at least as the headline says, you know, kind of the power couple of the beer industry in terms of hops. And so, you know, some of our listeners are going to be very familiar with different hop varieties, kind of some of those names. And obviously Citra and Mosaic are right at the top of the list that most people would recognize. But for people who are a little less familiar or just, you know, like to drink beer, but they don't necessarily like to think too much about hop varieties. Can you kind of explain how those two became as you put it, the power couple of the beer industry. It's really fascinating because it, it, Citra and Mosaic, I started drinking before they show up. Mm -hmm. Citra is what, 2008? Mosaic is 2012. And so I remember beer like before BC, before Citra. (laughs) Um, When you've got 
cascade and you've got these kind of bittering hops and these like they're flavor and aroma hops, but they tend to lean more where bitterness is the showcase. So like American IPAs, double IPAs, you know, I living in Oregon in 2010, 2011, 2012 is, you know, those like a million IBU bombs that no one makes anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you have Citra and Mosaic come up. Mosaic is released in 2012, right at the time when this hazy IPA starts showing up in, in at least in New England, um, they start showing up. I start seeing them around like 2013. And then there's a, like, there's this trend even in clear beer in New England towards a softer bitterness, less mm-hmm. IBU, more flavor. And that's what Citra and Mosaic are like bred for. They're for flavor. They're for they're everything that like sit like that that cascade and these like big bittering hops are but then you you can get alpha acids and everything out of those too but like kind of a waste um with dry hop dry hopping starts big dry hopping starts showing up at around this time with the rise of hazy and then it just takes off i mean citra was popular yeah i mean it's it 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 shows up and then it takes off and it never stops and they it it keeps it keeps going which is you know and and people know citra people they've started to know mosaic and the the way that they work together is the way in the piece i kind of i drank um a local to me um mosaic and citra called uh, from fresh from alvarian brewing which is in new britain where i live um and like you get the citrus, you get, you get the orange and mosaic, you get this berry. And when the two mingle together, you get this like fruit salad note. Mm-hmm. That's just like when you're drinking a hazy IPA, that's what you want. And yeah. so the, it makes so much sense that they would be pals. I mean, other stuff works really well together too, but nothing like they're like, they were made, they're like the homecoming queen, king and queen. Like they're, or they're both queens cause they're both female hops, but yeah, it's a, uh, they're they're unstoppable and i love i love them i love them they're delicious they're delicious <laughs> yeah and i think an important thing to note here for people who aren't maybe as kind of familiar with how the hops industry works and how these varieties come to be is you know maybe for some people whose point of reference might be wine or something like that and you think of oh you know all these varieties of grapes that we're familiar with most of which have long you know centuries or millennia long histories not so with hops. Like hops are bred very intentionally. There's an ongoing almost arms race here in the Pacific Northwest in particular and in other parts of the world where hops are grown to come up with new varieties that you can patent, that you can, you know, kind of have an exclusive on and, and sell to breweries around the country, around the world. And Citroen and Mosaic are very, very successful uh, examples of that where they are being created or you know bred essentially to meet this market need and i think it's really interesting and that you point out i think a very important piece here which is at the same time that these aromatic sort of more fruit driven hops are first coming online being available more widely is right at the time when the style the hazy ipa style really starts breaking into the big time a style that really demands that kind of hop where the previous generation, even of not your really traditional bittering hops, but even I think of something out here, like we said, Cascade, like Simcoe, et cetera, that are okay in a, in an IPA that, but are not, but it's more about kind of piney resinous, more that kind of classic West coast IPA style hop don't fare as well in a hazy. And so you have this kind of beautiful synergy of not just these hops on their own, but a style that comes along at almost the ideal time to really 
bring them to the fore. Does that kind of jive with your understanding of the timeline? Yeah. The thing that's also really crazy to remember is that hop breeding takes like 12 years. Yeah. So when, you know, you're like, oh, well, I don't, they just make more, you know, fruity stuff. And like, it's really difficult to, you know, breed. There's different ones, then they have to plant them again. And year after year, it's a perennial. And then, you know, sending it out to brewers with just a number and maybe the brewers don't like it. That's happened before. And they mm-hmm. never get to name. It's just that like HBC you know, hot breeding company, like, I don't know, seven twenty seven, And it's like, Oh no, no, no one wants that. Don't throw it away. Burn the field. Well, don't burn the field, but um, it's yeah. And then at the same time, you also have different countries who've had beers, you know, like uh, the rise of New Zealand hops. Mm-hmm. Nelson Sauvin shows up. I remember having Nelson Sauvin for the first time when I lived in Oregon in an Elysian beer. Mm-hmm. And I was like, this is the most delicious thing ever. And you've got these fruity things that are showing up. And then you have Germany as well. Hallertau Blanc. Yeah. Uh, Man- Mandarina Bavaria. And all the, the rising galaxy hops. You get that tropical. And these hop varieties are just really pot, you know, and people are starting to go, oh, if they're from this, you know, it's, it's, it's fun to, when I teach about hops, you used to be able to say all hops from England are tea-like and floral and have the same things, but now they have Jester and Olicana and these kind of new school hops that are fruity and, and more fruit forward that are good with hazies. So it kind of put everything on its head. The hazies really changed the game mm-hmm. when it came to hop development because now you can't kind of lump countries and, you know, oh, every American hop is orange and pine, that American yeah. tang. I mean, there's coconut and watermelon and, you know, there. I don't even know what's going to happen in 10 years, what they got, up, you know, what they got up their sleeve because it's going to be, it's going to be cool as cool as hell i'm i'm always very excited about the future of beer i know i don't understand when people are like i don't remember when beer was good and i was like no beer's always been beer's always been good it's gonna keep being good yeah and i think that you know that that note about the sort of changing well it's not even changing landscape but just the sort of changing demands uh on hops on hop growing and on what kind of you know both beer drinkers and brewers want out of hops is is an important kind of note here because that's really a lot of that is what's driving this innovation, right? You know, brewers now, I think even to some extent drinkers, or at least people in the beer space who aren't brewers themselves are are no longer like, like, I think one thing that's really changed in beer. And and again, I'd be curious your thoughts on this. I think it used to be that like, okay, here are the raw inputs, right? Here's your, here are your different malts. Here's your, maybe your different yeast strains. Here's your, you know, maybe there's a few different kinds of hops and kind of you can assemble them in a few different ways, but kind of basically what you get is what you get. And now hops aren't the only space where this is true. There are lots of other things, whether it's at, you know, kind of additions, your various, um, you know, culinary ingredients, et cetera, all the different ways that people are finding to alter, modify, expand the flavor palette of beer. But hops are a big one because, we're finding that like, actually, yeah, you can grow hops that produce all kinds of aromas, all kinds of flavors in beers. And now brewers can come to a a hop grower or a a hop breeder and say, can you find me a hop that tastes like yuzu and I don't know, um, green beans or something. I mean, hope that doesn't sound very good to me, but maybe in the beer, who knows? Point is like, it's more now, I think the, the limit is 
well, A, the hops, which are an incredibly varied and we're finding kind of almost endlessly malleable uh, species. And of course, the imagination of the brewers, of the breeders, etc. But it's no longer like, okay, hops are a thing that come in a bag and they just sort of say like, you know, you know, basically they're just another kind of bulk input into your brewing recipe. They're much more critical to that. And I think, again, as you point out a little bit in the piece, and I think extrapolating from what you wrote is really true. A lot of that doesn't start, but is greatly expanded upon by Citra and Mosaic. Oh yeah. Like it's, there's, there are hops that like the, cause so in America, the USDA is in charge of um, hop growing and most other countries, the agriculture, their agricultural um, arm or their whoever um, would be in charge and they'll save stuff. You know, they'll be like from the eighties or the night, like they'll be like, wow, that tastes like whatever, you know, like Cascade was brewed. What was it? Is it citrus brewed? They're like, and whoever it was brewed originally for was like, nah, we good. <laughs> like, and then it goes to someone else. I think it was Miller and Miller was like, Oh, I like that. Like we'll fund your research and they'll grow it. And now it's huge. So we have like, there are these larger breweries that have the money or you have taxpaying researchers that are like, oh, we'll save this one because maybe in the future we'll, you know, keep it under our hat. And then one day people will want this. They don't want it now. Um, so it's just really cool how like you can go back in time and look at what was growing. Like Cascade came out never in the seventh because it came out in 1972. It was a USDA product. And people were like, no, nah, we like, no, thank you. They would call it American Tang. Like it had that orange, like no one wanted that in their beers. And then it became the, now it's not anymore, but in the, like when I was turned 21, so like the mid aughts, the the bound time Citra shows up. I mean, it's the number one grown hop in America, Mm -hmm. you know? So how long did it have to take to get its due? Um, When, when it came out, people were like, "Eh, eh, that's not what we're looking for. So it's pretty like, I don't know what they got down there. You know, I don't know what they're working on, but you know, it could change. It could, you know, it can change next year or the year after something's going to come out. That's going to shake things up. And it's, and Citra's going to, you know, it's Citra's not going to be the winner forever. There's going to be another hop combo in like five years that we're all going to be talking about. And you and I are going to have another chat. (laughs) We're going to be like, wow, can you believe that? strata and talus or just boom you know like i don't know yeah who knows for sure and it's it's funny because you're right in that there's that you need both the sort of you need the the quality of the hops you need them to sort of hit the beer zeitgeist at the right time and the right space and i think that's where the serendipity of Citra and Mosaic do have, does have to be mentioned it's not just that they're a great combo they are but as we said before they landed at a time you know, even though they were many years in development, they happen to kind of come to the fore at the time when the American beer palette, especially in the craft sector, was really looking for those more expansive fruit flavors, aromas, etc., as opposed to a more austere era that might have been like, mm, we don't need all this, like, give us a little more sharpness, a little more, maybe even a little more bitterness. I want to pivot a touch, but stay in the vague IPA realm, because as I mentioned to you and before we started recording, I think a thing that unites the both of us is our love of cold IPAs. And 
and I've written about them for Vine Pair as well. We haven't really talked about them on the podcast all that much because I think I'm the only person on the podcast normally who is all that excited about them. But since you share my enthusiasm, can you kind of explain to the listeners what a cold IPA is and kind of why you love it? Yeah. So a cold IPA is there's I, I may there's a lot of steps in a cold IPA. And I've, I've illustrated them, but if I forget off the top of my head, we'll link me. to your we'll link to an illustration that you've done. Oh, the, okay, in the show wonderful for people who want. Um, so it's usually to thirty percent corn or rice, um, lager, uh, lager yeast fermented warm. So then there's dry hopping at the tail end of fermentation. So there's biotransformation. and then they're usually the sweet spot. Kevin Davy, who founded, who discovered the cold IPA, or like. You know, created, created it, it. Yeah. yeah, discovered. Well, yeah, know. whatever. We you don't, you know what I mean. I, um, he says seven percent is the sweet spot, like ABV. And then what else? What am I forgetting? Is it? No, I mean, I think from a from a sort of descriptive standpoint or a process standpoint, I think that's right. I think maybe the simplest way, like the the right the rice or the adjunct component, is a, an important piece because I think from having talked to Kevin, I think his his idea of the beer is he wanted something with kind of the crispness and freshness and sort of roundness in a way of a classic adjunct lager, but with a hot profile and a higher ABV more akin to a classic West coast IPA. So, so instead of, you know, very much moving away from, you know, not the sort of mild sweetness of your classic, again, American adjunct lager, but not a big fruit bomb either in the style of a new England IPA. Yeah, and he also he and I share our dislike of IPLs. Mm-hmm. I don't, as pints and panels, I don't normally dislike beer, <laughs> and I like most styles. However, I have never had an IPL, and I'm in this. I have never had an IPL that I'm like, you know what? I'm really glad I drank that because it's either the hops, there's the cleanly, and there's a really good new school beer article of where Kevin talks about, um, it, like why he dislikes the IPL and why, and um, it's because the lager yeast is so, you know, it's clean. Yeah. So there's no esterification. So you just have these like hot bitterness with kind of, there's nothing to like meld it together. And when I had a cold IPA, it was everything I wanted. It Like it was everything that an IPL should be. Yeah. Um, but it's not an IPL. Well, and <laughs> People I think. People are always, yeah, like they're like, oh, no, they have the same thing. And I'm like, they are not the same thing. Yeah. I mean, it's a cold IPA is not lagered for one, even if you're using lager yeast. And I think the yeah. other important piece too is like, as you mentioned, like that seven percent ish, six and a half, seven percent ABV is actually really crucial for balancing the beer out. Because I think the IPL issue for me is not just the sort of jarring nature of like this very clean four and a half, five percent alcohol beer that you would imagine a lager to be, then over hopped kind of. It's like the the texture of the beer is all wrong for me, for, for something that's going to have that much bitterness. And that's where the, you know, using a lager yeast, but doing it at a warmer temperature, a, a kind of more classic ale for, uh, fermentation and giving the beer a higher ABV, a more classic IPA ABV just, yeah, makes the whole drink kind of work, but you don't, but for me, the selling point is, is that still at its heart in a way it is a really refreshing beer which is weird to say about an IPA at 7%, but it is in a way that very few to me IPAs are in a way that a good lager is refreshing. They're just so good. Yeah. Like once you have one, the first one I ever had was uh, Hello Friend, which is the clean beer side of Rare Barrel. Okay. 
uh, in Berkeley, California, did a collaboration with Cerebral Brewing in Denver, Colorado. And I had drawn a uh, label for Hello Friend because they have a rotating cast of artists that they cool. like use once and then they'll like, yeah. Um, they let me draw, they're like, draw whatever you want. And I was like, cats. And they're like, okay, sure. <laughs> um, so my, my label's just cats. Um, nothing to do with beer. Um, but they mailed me some of their other beers and that was the first time I had the cold IPA. And then the other thing that the cold IPA, it's, it leans heavy on those like Simcoe, the sea yeah. hops. You're like Chinook, Centennial, Cascade, these classic American IPA style, like, you know, old, old, old school, but they're, you know, you know what I mean? Um, and it's really good. Mm-hmm. I, I really, really enjoyed the Cerebral Hello Friend one. And I was like, wow, wow, this is really good. I had the original cold IPA from Wayfinder, which is where Kevin used to work before he and his lady friend, Lisa Allen started gold dot. Um, and it's more, way more floral mm-hmm. than, um, than I thought it would be. It lacks a, it has a fruitiness, but it also has this like very kind of refreshing dried fruit, almost English IPA character mm-hmm. to it. Um, to know every time I see a cold IPA, I'm like, yeah, I'm going to have that. I want that. And I don't normally like alcoholic, like beers that are 7%. Like I usually try to stay six or below, you know, I'm, even though I work in the beer industry, I'm a real lightweight. So I got to know, you know, like how much beer I've had, but I had two cold IPAs in South Africa this year. Cool. Yeah. It's wild. Yeah. They're everywhere. It's great. I'm okay with it. Yeah. It's wild how, you know, you know, I think even Kevin has remarked upon this uh, when, in talking about it, that like, when you now in the modern beer world, when you create something and you put it out there in the same way that we've seen with other beer styles that have been generated in the last 10 or 15 years, it can spread, especially with beer, because beer is such a you know relatively short kind of lead time on production. Someone can try something or see something and be like, hey, I want to make that. And a month, six weeks later, they can have it in their brewery, you know, maybe even packaged for sale or on tap for sale. In a way that just is so kind of wild to to see, yeah, this the style spread, um, you know, even if it's just in little bits and pieces to all the corners of the world where beer is made. It's really cool, and the actually the cold IPAs, both of them I had in um, South Africa were quite good. I actually I texted Kevin in South Africa, and I was like, <laughs> I just want to let you know I'm in Cape Town, and and he thought it was very humorous. That's cool. Yeah. Uh, Em, before we wrap things up here, I just I want to ask one more question for you because um, you mentioned at the top that you were starting to move into doing some cocktail illustrations and things like that for pints and panels. Do you have a favorite cocktail? I actually just did um, my my gin martini recipe oh. because so I don't order martinis when I go out because it's they're gigantic. Mm-hmm. So I make them at home because I only want two ounces of gin. I don't want, usually it's like three or yeah. two and a half and then one half vermouth. I also really like a dry uh, gin martini. I usually just do a vermouth rinse and then I dump the vermouth because I just, I don't know. Something about vermouth doesn't, but I like the way it kind of adds mm-hmm. to. Um, I am not a real, but I that's what I really like. I like, um, I, I also really like a Manhattan, a good Manhattan. There's a... Um, restaurant in new haven uh connecticut called crown 116 and they make historically sized cocktails okay so like small ones um which i really really like i when i go out drinking cocktail like i don't i can't go out and drink a cocktail because they're just all gigantic (laughs) um but i really enjoy i i like enjoy i like the idea of them 
Um, and actually we were getting our kitchen redone in May. And so we had lost the access. So we were going out for happy hour every night. And one of my demands was the happy hour had to have an old fashioned uh, on the menu because a happy hour old fashioned is going to be smaller than a normal old fashioned. That is because good it's, thinking. So I had some very nice old fashions, um, which I really enjoyed. Very cool. Um, yeah, so that's my. I'm gonna do cocktail once a week on my. Um, it'll be on web my website and then on my Instagram and all the all the all the social media feeds. So I think this week is. I just did pina colada, and then this week is. Oh, I got a lot of requests for um, a last word. Oh, okay. Yeah, so that will be. Uh, that is uh, this Friday. So. Very fun, excellent. Yeah. Well. I really appreciate your time. Thank you so much for joining us on the Vine Pair podcast. Look forward to seeing all the many, you know, wonderful, creative, and, and clever illustrations on Pints and Panels, whatever words you put out for the site or elsewhere. And uh, yeah, so you can find, uh, as mentioned, all of them stuff at pintsandpanels.com, on social media, et cetera. And again, and thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Joining me on the podcast is Beth Demon. She's a freelance writer, regular contributor to San Diego Magazine, podcast host for Good Beer Hunting, and to me most excitingly, the author of the upcoming book, The Beer Lover's Guide to Cider, which, Beth, as we record this, is like less than a month from publication. You must be thrilled? Scared? Both? Uh, Yeah, all of the above. Thrilled, scared, excited, nervous. I woke up yesterday at 3 o'clock in the morning just thinking about, like... <laughs> Oh, I've got to email so many people and continue setting up events for a book promo and things like that. So it's definitely getting real. Yeah. I've never written a book. Listeners know that. But I will say that I've known enough people who have written them that I think maybe this has been your experience as a, as a first-time author. Like, you think that the process of, like, getting the book finished is, like, the hardest part. But from everyone I've heard, it's actually from, like, the point where your final manuscript is accepted to, like through publication slash promotion that's actually the most stressful because in a way it's like the part that you're probably least familiar with yeah i mean writing a book is definitely not the same thing as writing a long-form feature or something like that except it kind of is (laughs) it's just nobody's really checking up on you the deadline was really dictated before it was picked up by the publisher and things like that so it's similar it's in the same wheelhouse as freelance writers are familiar with. And yeah, the the kind of selling it and marketing part of it is, I would say, I'm specifically not familiar with it because it's my least favorite thing to do. Yeah. Normally, I just write the thing and it gets put up and I don't have, you know, I'll put it on Twitter or whatever and that's cool. But now I have to do that. <laughs> like, <laughs> please buy this. Yeah. Um, and so for those who aren't familiar, it comes out on September 12th, 2023. Uh, just a few weeks after hearing this, can you? I want to talk about some of the, what the book is about, but can you give us kind of the the whether it's the jacket blurb, the elevator pitch, whatever? What's the sort of conceit of the book? Sure, it's basically it's in the title, really. It's the beer lover's guide to cider. If you like beer, here are some ciders that I think you will like, and here's why. And so the book is broken up into a couple of different chapters, really using beer as the framework for starting to understand cider. So one of the chapters is 
wild tart and sour ciders, alternatives to gozas, Berliner Weisses, Lambics, uh, Guzes, and other funky acid-forward beers. So if you know that you are a fan of those styles of beer, here are 10 recommendations for American-made craft ciders that I think you will enjoy based on similarities and overlaps that can be found between the two beverages. Now, some of the chapters are going to be a fairly easy bridge for people to make. You know, if you like sour ciders or sour beers, here are some ciders that you'll probably like. Some are a little bit more esoteric. You know, like if you like an American porter, there really isn't going to be a particular cider that's going to be an obvious one-to-one comparison. But I think going through the different chapters and breaking it into that kind of general categories, it's really for people to both correct some misconceptions about what people think cider is and educate them on what it really can be. So really, it's not even if you're just interested in beer. If you're interested in craft beverages in general, I think that there's a cider out there for you. And I hope that the book helps introduce people at least to the breadth of cider that is available and being made across the United States and really the world. So I'm curious, Beth, you know, I think I first became familiar with your work as probably those who are listening and are familiar did, you know, in the beer realm. Um, Has cider always been a passion of yours as well? Or kind of how did you, I, I guess what I'd say is, if you someone had asked you or maybe even asked me five years ago, oh, you know, you're writing a book, would you have thought at that point, yeah, I'm gonna write a book about cider? Obviously with a beer valence to it, but still it is a cider book first and foremost. Yeah, I, I don't think that cider five years ago was nearly as on my radar as it became really, I would say three years ago, when the idea for this book kind of started to coalesce in my mind, it was for CiderCon uh, 2020. It was right before the pandemic shut down everything. And I was invited to be on a panel where we drank wine, beer, and ciders side by side to kind of talk about the comparisons between the three different beverages. And I, at that point, definitely knew about cider. I was enjoying cider. The person who initially got me into craft beer way back when ended up working at a small cidery in Virginia. And so he would send me stuff since he started in 2013. The ciders he was making, very dry, very local and craft and small batch. And so I was aware of it, but I wasn't nearly as passionate about it. And I think a big reason for that was because cider is just not as easy to find as beer. I mean, I live in San Diego. There's 150 plus breweries across the county. There's bottle shops galore. And if they have, I mean, five ciders available at any bottle shop, that's that's a pretty good selection. And so the more that I started to get into it personally, and then once I kind of saw the reception of the cider enthusiasts who were at CiderCon, I kind of started to think maybe there's something to this. I'm getting a little bit older. I'm getting a little bit burnt out on beer. I can't drink it the same way that I I could when I was in my 20s. I can't really enjoy it the way that I did in my 20s, just kind of knowing what I know about the industry. (laughs) Maybe this is kind of a cool new future thing that I can dive into. And so I just kind of started playing around with the idea and got really into it. But of course, drinking several hundred ciders over the course of a year and a half will will do that to you so well it'll either 
make you a cider super fan or turn you off the category entirely, I guess. There's kind of two two outcomes there. I'm curious, you know, I think it's an important note for people who are not necessarily thinking about it this way. The thing you were saying about how access to cider is something that's still kind of maybe regional or local in a lot of ways, especially when you're talking about American craft cider. Obviously, there are some big brands, um, both American and international, that are pretty widely distributed. Not even talking about the mega brands, but just, you know, larger sort of craft or craft adjacent. But do you see a sort of interest in cider being something that is, you know, is it focused in specific areas where cider apples are grown or is there kind of a national interest in it and just isn't always being met in some of these communities like perhaps San Diego where it's there's not a there's not a local cider making scene in the way that there might be in New England or even perhaps in Virginia. Sure. I mean, it's interesting because California is actually one of the top producing states for apples in the United States, but it's certainly not San Diego. Um, And I do think that there are regional pockets of popularity around the United States that really do center around a lot of the areas where apples are grown. So New York, Washington State, a lot of the same places where hops are grown. And of course, proximity to where things are grown, cider tends to stay pretty close to the orchards and farms. But that doesn't mean that you can't find a great bottle of fresh cider in the middle of New York City or Los Angeles or something like that. I think that it has the potential to creep outwards. But as of now, I would say that where people drink the most cider in general tends to be where accessibility is is very close to where the apples themselves are grown. And I guess I almost have to ask this question too, because I think it's really maybe pertinent to the conversation both about cider and about maybe the book and all that. I think there's sometimes an interesting, well, people can come at cider from a few different directions. People can come to cider as their first beverage that they love, of course. People can come to cider as having been, like you, a beer drinker, perhaps first and foremost. People can come to cider from wine. Do you think that there's a sort of, like when we're talking about these craft ciders, is there a a better mindset to approach them from? Because I think sometimes the cider can suffer in my eyes, at least from being talked about and, and sometimes marketed and sold as something as it was maybe 15 years ago as like your gluten-free beer alternative. And whereas I think certainly some of the cider makers that I've talked to and some of the people that I think are making some of the best ciders in America really look at their, I mean, they look at what they're making as cider. They kind of don't want to talk about other beverage, beverage categories if you can, if they can help it. But if you kind of force them to, they would really prefer to sort of talk about their product more like wine, where it's more driven by variety, more driven by, of course, a sense of place, more driven, you know, by the orchard, as opposed to a little more process oriented the way we tend to think about perhaps most beer. Literally, the first sentence in my book is cider is not beer. So <laughs> I, I, I like to start off well, with that. Free because... samples. I love it. Yeah. And, and people do not like talking about cider, even as a beer adjacent thing. Like I get that. I respect that because cider is wine. It It is it, both in, in tax regulations and it's literally the fermented juice coming from a fruit. It's just not grapes. So 
it it is a wine and most people i would venture to guess come to cider through wine if they aren't just starting at cider but that number is very very few for just some of the reasons that we already talked about the misconceptions of what cider is and just a lack of general availability to the average consumer so i think that all generalizations aside bringing people into cider through the lens of beer is going to help the cider industry because they just need to get people in the door because the re-education already has to happen. People think that cider is sticky, sweet, alcohol pop, apple aroma, artificial, high sugar. They already think that. You've already got to change their minds and teach them what cider actually is and what it can be. So if you're taking consumers or attracting consumers from other segments, then what difference does it make if you've got another chapter in the book of education to cider regardless? So, but I think that really the future cider consumer has nothing to do with coming at it from spirits or wine or beer. When we look at the drinking habits of people who are 21, 22, 23, they're not starting with a segment. Like when I started drinking, I drank beer. I mostly drink beer. I considered myself a beer drinker for most of my adult life. That's not the way that people are drinking anymore. And that's not the way that people are starting to drink anymore. They like things that taste like pineapple, mango, berry, blah, 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 whatever it is. They don't care what the base spirit is. So I think that cider has a great opportunity to attract people, not through other segments, even though I think that will help them attract some of maybe the more established drinkers but the flavor itself. And there are certain American cider makers, I think in particular, who are less tied to apples only, apples and yeast only, because that's great. And there's certainly a room for the purity of cider. And I think that that is an elevated space that people can get to. But I love a pineapple cider, you know, and if it's balanced and and well-made and dry or even off dry or whatever it is, People who are looking for specific flavors can find them in cider. And I think that's a really exciting thing. Yeah. And I think it's it's interesting, too. You think about some of the admittedly very small scale stuff that I've come across of, of, over the last few years that are, you know, I, I don't even know how to exactly describe them. They're they're multi-fruit wines, maybe, or something like that as a way to talk like about Like a co-ferment it. or yeah, something like that. That are that yeah. are maybe grapes and apples or apples and plums or all kinds of random stuff. Mm-hmm. I mean, not random, but all kinds of things that, you know, in our sort of minds of, you know, in the, in the alcohol category in America, where we like to sort of clearly categorize things. And, you know, I mean, I think we've been going through this in a, in the drinks industry really since the rise of, of hard seltzer where, you know, your sort of classic like beer, wine, spirits, you know, sort of third to third to third breakout really no longer held because, well, is seltzer beer? I mean, I mean, again, in the way that cider is wine from a tax legalistic standpoint, seltzer is beer in that regard, but no one thinks of it that way. It's not really consumed that way. It's not really marketed that way anymore. It's sort of this whole thing is kind of turn the whole alcohol industry upside down and we're only we're kind of shaking around as we speak whether it's with you know rtds other you know seltzers with spirit in them etc like yeah there's a space now where where people if you can deliver the flavor that people are looking for and you can do it in a way that maybe is more appealing to people on you know whether it's you know you're doing it through 
actual ingredients as opposed to just natural flavors, things like that, that can all be a big selling point. I think that works definitely in, can work in cider's favor. Definitely. I mean, there's people in beer who only want to drink a classic Czech, you know, amber lager or, or a Pilsner or Kolsch, and they want to have these really crisp traditional styles that have been made the same way for 200 years. And like, that's cool. And then there's the people who like the pastry, lactose, adjunct stout, you know, with 17 different ingredients. And I'm like, that's cool too. People say, oh, I brew what I want to drink. And it's like, well, maybe you should brew what keeps the the lights on. other people want to drink. And (laughs) yeah, and that's, so I think there's room for everybody. And cider has a really unique place to kind of ride maybe the tailwinds of the of the hard seltzer and rtd revolution that is definitely losing steam and capture some of that some of that kind of spaghetti thrown at the wall to see what sticks attitude and and uh, cider just has to just has to talk about itself a little bit more it just has to find you have to be able to find it a little bit better and i hope that the book shows that you might have to look a little bit harder than, you know, the the 70 beers that you have at the grocery store and two ciders. Maybe you'll have to go to a specialty bottle shop or maybe you'll discover a cidery that's in your neighborhood that you didn't even know was there. Or maybe next time you're at a restaurant, instead of ordering one of the 10 IPAs, you order the one cider they have and just start to experiment because I think people will be really surprised at what they find. But I say it in the book, people aren't going to discover cider accidentally. It's not a passive thing as of now that the American consumer is just going to kind of accidentally stumble upon. If you're interested in trying it, you're probably going to have to seek it out. And I hope that in the future, that won't be the case. But that's sort of the state of the industry as I perceive it right now. So on the topic of sort of seeking it out and talking a little bit about where the American cider industry stands, because, you know, we've had this a conversation about cider a couple of times over the life of the podcast. And one of the interesting things I think comes up every time that we discuss it is a sort of challenge, as at least it's been presented to me and as I think I see it, of, you know, a abundance of table culinary apples and a real lack of true cider apples and the country. And obviously, there are individual exceptions. There are, you know, cideries that are completely focused on traditional cider apple varieties. But on the whole, America does, doesn't have a bunch of cider apple trees. Like it's just in the way yeah, that, yeah. you know, Europe does, the way that whether it's Spain, England, France, etc., you find them. So, you know, is the story of American cider more about making cider dynamic even if you don't maybe necessarily always have the kind of apple varieties you want or is or are we seeing more movement towards these traditional cider apple varieties or or whatever the new new cultivars etc that might be coming up you know it's really hard to say because if if all of a sudden cider demand spiked even just a little bit you're right there aren't enough trees in the united states to support a huge influx of new drinkers and it takes decades for new trees to come online. So, you know, they say the the best time to plant a tree is 50 years ago. (laughs) The second best time is today. And it's hard for farmers right now to see the light at the end of the tunnel and be like, well, I guess I'm going to plant a couple hundred apple trees and hope that by the time they start bearing fruit, that the demand is there. So, there are makers who 
you know, they'll import European cider apples or the juice to, to ferment on site or something like that. Like there are workarounds and, and I can't really, I can't really speak to the level of sourcing um, and what sort of supply chain of raw material issues will, will arise in the future, because I do think that there will be some, I don't think that I necessarily have the, the wherewithal to, to predict it or even offer suggestions, but, but yeah, I mean, people will have to, you know, figure it out and, and work around it. And uh, there are definitely different makers taking different approaches to that sort of thing. Some, some are, you know, could be criticized as being less less craft as growing the apple on your farm and pressing it on site and it's a real farmhouse style like that's of course the romance of it but yeah i don't know we'll see my answer is i don't have an answer that's a good question <laughs> that's the next book talking about kind of the current state of american craft cider and where things are you know the first kind of craft cider boom that i remember vividly 10, 12, maybe 15 years ago, again, kind of aligned with, as I was saying before, the sort of gluten-free movement of like, hey, here's a here's an option that is, um, you know, maybe comes in packaging that's familiar to people who like beer. It can be served on tap, et cetera, but it's gluten-free naturally, et cetera. And there, I think you saw a lot of emphasis on, on sort of craft ciders, ciders in general that were like clean, crisp, maybe quite dry, but not really embracing cider's kind of funky wild side. Mm-hmm. And now given where the kind of American drinking palate is at, obviously the uh, success of the natural wine movement and kind of the popularity of those kinds of wines with those sort of funky flavors, are, are you seeing a sort of different dynamic in cider where more of, again, sort of cider's freaky side is coming out? I kind of think so because American makers tend to have a little bit of a different approach to experimentation than maybe some of the other traditions of of beer or even cider making, you know, across Europe or UK or, or where have you. And I think that even though there are people who want to adhere to strict, dry, apple driven cider without any other ingredients and things like that. There are always going to be people like that, and they exist in the United States as well. There are, there is a little bit of a bigger history of, you know, Basque ciders and really funky, uh, wild, naturally fermented things across across the world. And so I think that the interesting thing about cider, especially as it compares to beer, is that there is a bigger breadth of traditional cider making techniques to draw from that aren't just super dry or or a little bit one-dimensional with just apples and, and really nothing else. I mean, you look at the cider throwing traditions of Spain and that's some funky stuff. I mean, that's like a lambic and it takes a little bit of a, of a learning curve to get used to the same that it would in beer. You've got, you know, keeved ciders from from France and Normandy that are pretty sweet or or might act as a digestif, uh, pomos, apple brandies, things like that. So even though the entryway for people is generally going to be what I call an introductory cider, you know, alternatives to American light lagers or cream ales or something, you know, a lawnmower beer or cider in that vein. There are, there are alternatives to old ales and barley wines and, you know, Belgian doubles and things like that. And, and those still fall well within a 
long-standing cider tradition that is being brought to the United States. So I think that there's certainly room for both and just finding it for the curious consumer, that's going to be kind of the, the barrier to entry. And I hope that the book helps people find it, or at least gives them a starting point to kind of start their own cider journey. Because I think once you start, like me, you'll realize how diverse the flavors, the mouthfeels, the finishes are. And it's, it's exciting. And frankly, it's cool to be the first one of your friend group to find something really cool. Like, isn't that what craft beer is all about? Like FOMO and, and hype and grabbing something difficult that nobody else knew about and blowing people's minds. Like, hello, cider's right there. Beer isn't blowing anybody's mind anymore. Like it's time to move on. Well, and I think the other piece of this that, that I think is very relevant here too, is that a thing that I've talked about with people with cider before that I think is a really cool thing about it is here you have a product with, you know, in some cases, this incredible level of provenance, you have this very expressive product that, you know, is even at the absolute high end, just dirt cheap when compared to, you know, fine wine, stuff like that. Mm -hmm. You know, I can't imagine you could probably answer this question for me. What's the most expensive cider that you like mention in the book? That I mention in the book. I don't mention any prices, so that's a good. Well, I don't, but but I mean, you know, <laughs> obviously, because you know, prices immediately date the book. But um, sure, but like, or whatever that you've mean, had a chance to try, like thirty bucks maybe for a. Oh, I mean, or yeah, sure, and, and that's like you know, heritage estate yeah. and and vintage, you know, blah 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 blah. All of these great keywords that kind of indicate that it's like something fancy schmancy. But yeah, thirty bucks is probably yeah about up there. And I mean, there are certainly some of the more spirits driven, like the distilled ciders that yeah. are, you know, going to be higher ABV and a higher price tag and things like that. But I mean, compared to a nice port or brandy or or something like that, I mean, not even, not even in the same universe and yeah. arguably just as good, if not better, in my opinion. So <laughs> yeah, it's, it's a really accessible price point. It, that is kind of the nice thing about it. And even though cider is wine, it's frankly, it's just less fussy. You know, I, I I don't see people wearing collared shirts and, and sniffing and swishing in the same way. And it just, you know, people aren't really testing each other's knowledge in the same way that it seems to be like in, in the wine world. It is a lot more casual and fun. And um, I find that it's a little bit more accepting. I mean, I'm a woman in beer. People aren't always the greatest to me. And I haven't really had many bad experiences with cider. And I hope it stays that way. And, you know if it becomes the next big thing that a bunch of jerks don't (laughs) ruin it for everybody. But as of now, I mean, it's mostly just a bunch of farmers who like fermenting apple juice and, and sharing it. And it's, yeah, it's pretty great. It's certainly true that uh, if you have the opportunity to visit uh, places where they, you know, make cider, it is, you know, I think even for jaded folks like you and me, it's, it's a pretty romantic you know, kind of space, you know, there's an orchard, there's yeah. a farmhouse, there's a cider press, you know, it can be pretty like, okay, you know, I'm not like out here, American gothic it up, but it does <laughs> kind of have those vibes a little bit without well, I mean, the creepy pitchfork. And it's stuff. the American beverage, you know, yeah. like it has this, this history and this romance and this, this tie to, to, to bygone eras. And I mean, it has a great story. And I think, plenty has been written about the history of cider in the United States. Not all of it is great, 
Um, not all of it is true. <laughs> not all of it's true. Yeah. A lot of it is uh, made up. Johnny Appleseed, forget everything you knew about him. But, but you know, it, it is, it is really romantic. And, and I mean, I think anybody who appreciates the story of, of craftsmanship will find that with cider because beer is really to glorify the person who makes it. Yes, you need to have good ingredients. You need to use high quality stuff and, you know, expensive equipment. You need to have the skill to to execute a recipe properly. But it's got the fingerprints of the brewer all over it. Cider, forget it. It's a very humbling thing in that you kind of just have to let the fruit do its thing. And you can kind of guide it gently in a direction that you want it to go. But at the end of the day... It's sort of doing what it wants to do. You can't predict it and you may not be able to replicate it, which I think speaks to the patience, the artistry, the vision, the romance, everything that we're talking about. And if you have any desire or any any love of, you know, handmade things or something that's really from the earth and something that you I think pairs better with food than beer or wine quote me on that you know what's you're not literally to doing like. that right now yeah yeah it's like what's what's not to like about that people people talk themselves out of drinking cider all the time and i'm i'm telling you y'all are nuts it's the best once you <laughs> once you get bit by the cider bug i mean you'll really never go back all right well beth if people have been at least a little bit nibbled on uh where can they find the book everywhere everywhere books are sold but uh yeah i mean hopefully your local bottle shop online bookstores etc it's called the beer lover's guide to cider american ciders for craft beer fans to explore and it comes out september 12th excellent well beth thank you so much for your time really appreciate it look forward to checking out the book once it is out and hopefully uh get a chance to talk to you about cider again sometime in the future anytime Thanks so much for listening to the Vine Pair Podcast, the flagship podcast of the Vine Pair Podcast Network. If you love listening to this show, or even if you don't, but I really hope that you do, as much as we really do love making it, then please drop us a review or a rating wherever it is that you get your podcast, whether that be iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, anywhere. If you are listening to this on a device right now through an app, however you got this audio, please drop a review. It really helps everyone else discover the show. And now for some totally awesome credits. So the Vine Pair podcast is recorded in our New York City headquarters and in Seattle, Washington in Zach Jabal's basement. It is recorded by Zach, mastered and produced by Zach. He loves all the credit. Keep giving it to him. Drop his name in the reviews. He's going to love hearing how much you love him. It is also recorded in New York City by our tastings director, Keith Beavers, who is the managing director of the entire Vine Pair podcast network. I'd also love to give a shout out to our editor-in-chief, Joanna Sherino, who joins us on every single podcast as our third and most important host. Thank you as well to the entire VinePair staff and everyone who's been involved in making VinePair as special as it's become. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next week.